0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis,
1: one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street.
2: Pervasive stench, created by unburied corpses, excrement, and seven million sets of waterlogged clothing and boots, unchanged for weeks, overhung the western front from Switzerland to the sea. Along 500 miles of rival defenses, some men occupied precarious mountaintops among the blasted pines, while others sheltered behind the breastworks along the Isser Canal, where it was impossible to entrench. End quote. Dastrophe, 1914, by Max Hastings. Hello everyone, and welcome to History of the Great War, episode 39. This week, I would like to thank two listeners who left reviews on iTunes this week, whose names are extremely difficult to pronounce, but thank you anyway. Thank you for the positive reviews for everybody who has given them, they are quite inspiring. If you enjoy the show, consider leaving a review on iTunes to help spread the word. This week, we are going to take a short break from the story of events of the war and cover a few topics around that I've been trying to sort of work in for several episodes now, but it's never really worked, and all of these topics sort of revolve around what it was like to live in the trenches in 1914. The war wasn't the first time trench warfare had happened, but it was by far the most elaborate and large-scale use of them, which hasn't been seen since. This resulted in a very unique situation for the troops at the front, which wouldn't be fully grasped and handled during the war. So today, we will discuss a bit about the battlefield that the troops were living in, before looking at how they managed to survive in the conditions. Then I will hit on two quick topics, uh, medicine and tours of duty. I will close the episode with some of the more horrific conditions that the troops experienced. Throughout all of the episodes we have covered, some of these topics occasionally have come up but I wanted to have a single episode to dedicate to them, since the life of the soldiers in the trenches is the greatest lasting legacy of the war. I have covered some of these topics in piecemeal discussions during other episodes, but there will be a lot of new information, even for History of the Great War veterans. It goes without saying, but is also an important place to start the episode, by saying that the armies and commanders in Europe in 1914 were not at all prepared for the trench warfare that they found themselves in almost immediately. They were still under the mindset that the battles would be much like those found during the Franco-Prussian War or earlier wars, where maneuver, flanking, marches, all would be key to properly positioning their army so that they would have the greatest advantage. This also meant that the equipment and training that the troops had were all built around these facts, Cavalry was still seen as an integral part of the order of battle, and the artillery that the troops had was all designed around the fact that it would be constantly on the move, only setting up temporarily to shell the enemy before moving to a new position. In an era where all mobility for artillery was provided by horse teams, this put some hard limits on the size and type of artillery that was available. While this is an obvious example, there are some less obvious examples as well, like the lack of gun-cleaning equipment. When men found themselves stuck in trenches instead of on an open march, it is obvious that there would be a greater number of instances of guns getting dirty and muddy. So, pretty early in the war, they started running out of gun-cleaning kits, which is like a basic essential. They also lacked proper digging equipment. Most troops might have had a portable entrenching tool, Uh, think of like a foldable shovel. But since trenches were seen as temporary protections, the presence of more formidable shovels, let alone picks to break up the hard ground, was not guaranteed. While the soldiers were not provided with everything they needed, they certainly were not lacking of stuff. The soldiers of 1914 were going into battle carrying a lot of stuff, 100 pounds of it at times. That is like 45 kilos for our non-American listeners. I consider myself reasonably fit, but I don't think I could make it more than a few miles with 100 pounds on my back. G.J. Myers, in A World Undone, does a brief overview of what you might find in the packs of these men. Quote, Common soldiers, whenever they moved, even when sent off on log marches or across no-man's land in daylight assaults, carried a 10-pound rifle, at least a 150 rounds of ammunition, bottles of water, an overcoat, a blanket with ground cloth, a trenching tool, days of rations that weren't opened and without an officer's permission, a pocket primus miniature stove with fuel, a mess kit with mug and cutlery, and whatever else they could manage, from socks and underwear to shaving gear, toothpaste, bandages, and books. End quote. Now part of this, it should be said, was the fault of the men. Uh, they didn't understand the real situation they were in any better than the commanders behind the lines, so the men, at least in the beginning, took far too much personal equipment into battle. Simple things like books and keepsakes from homes... These types of items were generally discarded for later. But even when these were taken out of the packs, what the men were being sent with just as sort of a standard issue was just far too heavy, and it would very soon become apparent, and this would actually change pretty quickly in the war, and men would start, you know, keeping their larger packs back behind the lines when they went on an assault. By the middle of 1915, the battlefield that the men were on had been evolving for almost an entire year, which, of course, brought a lot of changes. By this time, there were around 5,000 men per mile of the front on the western front, or about a man per foot of the front, which is just a, a staggering amount And when you're talking about a 500-mile-long line. Imagine having a line of people standing shoulder-to-shoulder shoulder for hundreds of miles. With this level of manpower, it wasn't necessary to have them all on the front line and ready to fight at all times. A sizable part were almost always designated to jobs to change or improve the lines. How these improvements were done varied from place to place along the line, just like the terrain in those areas varied as well. Back when we discussed the battles around Ypres, I believe I mentioned the fact that they couldn't dig very deep due to the high water table in the area. If much more than a shallow ditch was dug, the risk of it being flooded with water was very high, and this wasn't the only area of the front where this was the case. There are a bunch of stories, especially during the spring and fall, when the rains were the heaviest, of soldiers on both sides sitting on top of their trenches instead of inside of them to escape the water. This type of activity only happened early in the war. Later in the war, it would have just been far too deadly. This is just one example of a reasonably common practice of showing yourself above the trenches during the first few months of the war until the snipers really took over the battlefield between large-scale attacks. Snipers were essentially just designated marksmen, sometimes provided with guns with telescopic sights, whose goal was to punish any person who exposed themselves above the trenches during the daylight. The snipers were extremely deadly, and you see a lot of really funny instances of snipers trying to conceal themselves on the battlefield to provide for better lines of fire. This was in the form of simple things like camouflage and the precursor of the modern-day ghillie suit to more elaborate schemes that involve things like fake trees. So the soldiers in these wet areas couldn't dig down very deep, but they couldn't show themselves above the ground. So they did what they had to do, which was build a wall of sandbags to provide some protection. You see similar practices where the ground was so stony or was just plain rocks, like in the southern parts of the front near the mountains. One item that was missing from my mental image of the trenches in these areas where they were building up a parapet out of sandbags was that they also had to build a wall in the back of the line, just as much as in the front. I guess I always pictured it as one wall with men covered and covering behind it, but in fact it would have been two parallel walls. This makes a lot of sense when I thought about it, like the fact that artillery would be landing all over the place, not just right in front of the line. In between these two less than ideal digging regions were the areas where most of the fighting would happen, and where the classic idea of trenches would be seen. They were, for the most part, drier in these areas, and they had soil that was more workable so that the men could dig trenches into the ground easily, while not also having them fill with water instantly or collapse. This is where you see firing bays and firing steps, dugouts and sap trenches going out into no man's land, sort of everything that you think of as a typical World War I trenching system. So what I want you to do is picture in your mind that sort of classical set of trenches that most people have seen in movies or television shows or on the internet, and keep that picture in your mind. Okay, so are the trenches that you have in your mind in reasonably straight lines? If so, that is bad so make them all, like, zigzagging and crooked. One of the early lessons learned by the engineers was that the trenches were better if they were narrow and constantly zigzagged. This seems a bit counterintuitive. If you're digging a ditch, for example, you want that thing to be as straight as possible. But if you're digging a trench that the enemy is going to try and take, this method has some problems. First of all, it allows artillery and grenade fragments to cause maximum damage as they travel down the trenches. A straight line is also far easier for an enemy to capture because all it takes is one well-placed machine gun to turn a previously protective trench into a shooting gallery, for as far as the gun can shoot. A crooked trench made it more difficult for a small group of enemy soldiers to cause damage all along the line, and made it more difficult for them to take large sections of the trenches. The trenches were also made as narrow as possible. The most important purpose of the trench was to protect men from artillery fire, and by making a trench as narrow as possible, the amount of vulnerable space where the artillery shells could hit was reduced, as much as possible. The best way to picture the trenches is like a big zipper running along the battlefield, with a bunch of right angles that cause the trench to swerve back and forth. I have put a few pictures up on the website, so you can really understand what I mean by all this. The trenches on the western front were generally a few hundred yards apart, sometimes more, sometimes less. There were even parts of the line that they were only 100 feet apart, which, to me, seems a bit ridiculous. As a bit of comparison, it wasn't unheard of for lines in the east to be several thousand feet apart. There also wasn't just one line of trenches in the west, that would be far too easy. When viewing aerial photographs of the trenches, they looked like a confusing mess, maze-like and almost impossible to navigate, which was actually pretty accurate. The British, for example, had a front line, uh, then a support line a few hundred yards behind it, and then a reserve line a few hundred yards behind that. So three lines of zigzagging trenches. Then they would have a bunch of communication trenches between the lines to connect them so that the troops could move between the lines without being exposed to fire. And then between the lines, you would have a bunch of dead-end trenches. Uh, These would be created for all kinds of reasons. Maybe it led to a dugout, maybe it was part of a trench line that was replaced by a newer set of trenches, maybe it led to a latrine. Really, you just never knew what you were going to find at the end of a trench. And this caused a ton of confusion. It was not at all uncommon, and you see this especially often when completely new units come into their first set of trenches for troops to get completely lost while trying to get up to the front line. And of course, just to make 100% sure, in that mental image of this big grid of trenches, they're not in straight lines, remember, it's a bunch of zigzagging to and fro. This system, of course, did not pop up overnight, and it took a while for it to be developed. In early January 1915, Falkenhayn told the German commanders to make a strongly fortified front line on their section of the front, and that front line should be held at all costs. He also told them to dig a secondary line of trenches, so the troops could be pushed out of the first set and still have some protection. Some generals, and not just German, but British and French as well, were hesitant to dig second and third lines of trenches, because they thought it would make it too easy for the troops to fall back to during attacks. It would actually take a direct order from Falkenhayn to his commanders to fix this hesitancy on the German side, and by the end of 1915, the German line usually had three trenches, just as prepared as the one in front of it for defense from attacks. Especially as the British and French kept slightly altering how they were attacking, this defense in depth became more and more important. Now, I have just one more piece to add to this mental image of the battlefield. The classic thought of the World War I battlefield is of the completely destroyed landscapes at places like Verdun or on the Somme or at Passchendaele after the epic battles that occurred there. But for the most part, this isn't how the front line was in 1915. Now, there were of course exceptions. Places like Vimy Ridge were already really beat up by the end of 1915. But most of the battlefields along the front were not nearly as broken. There were things like trees, houses, and entire villages that existed between the lines and between the trenches. These areas were slowly beat down by the shelling, but they were still standing for now. This fact, combined with the static nature of the front, meant that some landmarks gained notoriety with the troops while they were still standing, and kept their names long after they ceased to actually exist. Woods and houses were still used to denote areas of the front while in 1918, when their namesakes sometimes didn't even make it out of the first year of the war. I think all of that information is pretty good to give you a picture of the battlefield. Many, many trenches, none of which were straight, Some of them weren't even underground, coupled with some real live trees, maybe even a few fake ones with snipers in them, and a house or two. Hopefully you have a solid picture in your mind of what a trench system may have looked like during the war, but what about the actual life of the soldiers who were occupying them?
1: Hey everyone, I'm a busy person. Kids, job, a podcast you may have heard of, and because I'm so busy, sometimes I just do not want to cook. And that's why I'm here to talk to you about Factor. They are America's number one ready-to-eat meal kit. I can tell you about how awesome the creamy pesto pork chop is, or how delicious the turkey, chili, and zucchini was, but everything I've tried from Factor tastes great. I think the part that surprised me the most is that after I ate them, I felt satisfied. I don't know of too many things that are ready in two minutes that leave me feeling great like Factor does. Factor has 34-plus delicious menu options that make my life easier and honestly healthier. And really, I need both of those things. So head over to factormeals.com slash GW50 and use code GW50 to get 50% off. That's code GW50 at factormeals.com slash GW50 to get 50% off.
2: mostly due to whose army you were in instead of where you were stationed. Part of this was due to the different mindsets between the different participants in the conflict. During the retreat after the Battle of the Marne, the Germans had been able to pick the ground that they wanted to defend, which was generally the highest ground in the area, and they were very dedicated to defending it. The British and French troops just sort of found themselves digging in where the Germans had put them, and while this mindset changed later on, The British and French saw their trenches as staging and jumping off points for the next offensive, instead of as long-term living areas. And while they still of course created them out of sheer necessity, they often ended up being far less inviting than their German counterparts. This increased effort by the Germans early in the war would really pay off for them almost instantly, not just in terms of protection, but also just in terms of quality of life. All along the front, but particularly from Verdun northwards, the Germans had a tendency to dig many deep shelters that were completely impervious to Allied artillery shelling. Some of these dugouts were even fully furnished with bedding and other bits of furniture. Some of them even had electricity. These were joined by trenches with machine gun posts that were also heavily protected, with trenches that were lined with wooden walkways and walls to prevent cave-ins. When compared to the British and French trenches early in the war, there were often little more than ditches dug wherever they were stationed, the difference was staggering. When the attacks managed to reach the first line of German trenches, there were almost always comments in the diaries of the attackers about how awesome the German trenches were. One thing to keep in mind was that all along the front, the line was not completely static, and the trenches were constantly being remade. Whether it was through improvements to existing trenches or through fixing problems caused by shell fire or enemy actions, both sides were constantly digging, redigging, widening, strengthening, or doing something to their sector of the line. In May 1915, 6 million sandbags were shipped over the channel to British troops, and these were used to make improvements through the trenches that were never going to be perfect. If there is one absolute truth about the troops fighting in the Great War, it is that they were all very good at digging. While the German lines were often superior to their enemies, in Catastrophe 1914, Max Hastings also claims that during the first few years of the war, the Germans ate far better than their British and French counterparts. Each side ate differently with the British giving their troops biscuits, bread, jam, vegetables, bacon, and somewhat the famous bully beef. Bully beef, for those who don't know, roughly resembles like canned corn beef, which is just salt-cured beef, which is generally boiled and then cured in a heavy salt brine and then tinned in some way. The Germans were similar, but their rations featured a heavier reliance on potatoes and other vegetables. All three sides issued alcohol rations to the troops at the front, with wine for the French, brandy for the Germans, and rum for the British, although there was, of course, some variation there. This was used to help morale and to help calm the men's nerves during their long days at the front. One thing that I want to make very clear, and if this is the only fact that you retain from this episode, then I think it is worth the effort. The generals did not, in any case, get the troops drunk before attacks. This is a rumor that makes the rounds around the internet circles every year or so, and it is absolutely 100% false. The alcohol ration was generally increased the night before an attack, but not nearly enough to get the men drunk. Again, it was used in this case strictly as a way to calm the men's nerves, which right before an attack were strung about as tight as they could be, and it was always a concern that they would break. So again, I just want to make 100% completely clear that the rumor of commanders driving drunken men across no man's land because that's the only way they could get them to attack is false. One of the great comforts for the men, other than that hit of alcohol in the morning, was the delivery of mail. The French, British, and Germans were all pretty good at delivering mail right up to the front line, with it often being second only to rations in the minds of the men. The British Postal Service was somewhat famous for their ability to get the mail up to the men, with daily newspapers being delivered just a few days after they were released, while at their peak, 12.5 million letters were sent from back home every week. These letters brought not only news and information from back home, but also gifts. Food was often one of the favorite gifts that a man could get at the front line. With the sort of rationed-out food lacking the good-tasting attribute, any food from home, especially sweets, was seen as an amazing gift. Things like newspapers and letters from home served another purpose as well, to break up the monotony of trench life. The British, for example, had stand to at dawn, breakfast at 7, lunch at 12.30, tea at 4, dinner at 7, sleep by 9.30. Day after day after day. The same routine will become extremely boring to anybody, so anything to keep the men busy was important. While the mail was one part of this equation, the commanders also did their best to keep everybody busy. Patrols, sniping, local attacks, trench improvements were all activities that were done on days where there were no large attacks planned. During the night, trench raids often took place, something that I will be dedicating an entire episode to discussing later in the year. However, even with all of these fun activities that keep the men busy, it very quickly became apparent to everyone that the troops could only stay in the front lines so long. The fact that troops couldn't fight forever was of course a well-known fact. There are well-known limits to the physical endurance of men after all. But the new part of this concept during the First World War was that not only could troops not fight all the time, but they also couldn't even be in the front lines all the time. This included the front-line sections of the front, which were considered quiet sections. Even the pieces of the front like this, without large-scale attacks, were often experiencing artillery fire, small raids, shooting, etc. on a daily basis, and extended exposure to this environment slowly wore the soldiers down. This forced all of the armies to look at ways to rotate men so that they could have a break. On the western front, this often meant that for the most part, men spent about a week in the front line before moving back to the secondary line, and then another week they would move back to the reserve line, and then for a week they would be out of the line altogether. This meant that the men were only under the highest amount of stress for about a week out of every month, but this was still more than enough. A condition that would not be well known at the time of the war, but we today now know as post-traumatic stress disorder, reared its ugly head early and often in World War I. The medical officers of the day didn't really know what it was, and it ended up getting the name of shell shock. The story of men with shell shock is a tragic tale, with it often being misdiagnosed as simple cowardice. I personally consider it one of the most important stories of the war, and I will be doing an episode dedicated to it later this year. While the primary reason for these rotations was the sheer physical and mental endurance of the men, there was also the concern about the troops getting too friendly with each other across the trenches. The French General de Gaulle would say, Trench warfare has a serious drawback. It exaggerates this feeling in everyone. If I leave the enemy alone, he will not bother me. It is lamentable. End quote. And General D'Herbal, the leader of the 10th Army at Artois, would say quote, Please note that men who stay too long in the same sector become familiar with their neighbors opposite. This results in conversations and sometimes visits, which often lead to unfortunate consequences. End quote. These are two French examples, but most of the commanders shared similar thoughts. The men were also supposed to get leave away from the fighting every once in a while, and this really varied from army to army. Part of the reason for the French mutiny in 1917 is because it had been years since some of the French soldiers had had extended leave. When the stars did align for the troops and they did get a bit of leave, they had quite a good time. I thought this was a good statistic. After a period of leave... 80 out of every 1,000 men of the British Expeditionary Force had contracted a venereal disease. Hmm. So obviously the British were finding a way to have fun in the French cities that they visited, if they didn't get it to go back home, that is. These trips back home for British soldiers were not frequent, but they are well documented, of course, given how much the soldiers looked forward to them. In every war, there is sort of a tension in the armies between the front-line troops and the troops whose jobs places them in the rear. When the troops would go on leave, the men at the front would often have some hard feelings when they saw how the non-front-line troops of the army were living. Gunner Wilhelm Hillern Flinch would write in his diary during a period of leave, quote, "...in the rear, they are living exactly as in peacetime, and indeed do not notice the war." Infantry and pioneers bear the brunt of it all, as I see it. They wear funeral shrouds day and night. Look at my poor troopers marching up the road on their way to be pulverized and waterlogged in trenches. No, decidedly in this war there is no equality in the sufferings endured by the different combatants at the front. End quote. These feelings were just exacerbated due to the levels of suffering and hardship on the front lines, a zone that often only extended back as far as the artillery shells could be fired. This would be the last war, though, where aerial bombardment, which would bring the suffering of the front to entire countries, was not in force. That particular type of horror would be saved for later. Some of the horrors experienced by the men at the front often revolved around medicine and hygiene. The front lines would only very rarely fall under the definition of sanitary, which caused many problems in terms of diseases. The men usually did their best to keep things at least sort of clean, latrines were often set up in dead in trenches that were created especially for that purpose. But these weren't always accessible, so sometimes soldiers would have to relieve themselves in bully beef tins or something similar and chuck it out into no man's land, or sometimes into a shell hole. These places aren't the worst places to dispose of human waste until a shell hits and it turns into a biological grenade. In these kinds of conditions, diseases were rampant, as we discussed a bit during our discussion of the Gallipoli Campaign. The types of diseases often varied based on the weather on the front at the time. When it was cold and wet, problems like trench foot, which is a fungal infection from constantly cold and wet feet, or trench mouth, which would cause the teeth to fall out, were joined by more common diseases, like flu or rheumatism. When it was warm, it was just as bad, with tons of fever outbreaks, and just about every kind of insect-carrying disease that you can think of making an appearance at the front. Two constant companions for the soldiers were rats and lice. Rats were literally everywhere, with all of the decomposing bodies and other food sources, they had a veritable feast for the four years of the war. Stories of lice are almost constant in every soldier's account of the fighting. Here is one soldier discussing the problems with trying to get rid of lice. Quote, with heavy rains each day forcing us inside our billets, our primary occupation was hunting lice. Each of us carried thousands of them. They found a home in the smallest crease, along seams in the lines of our clothing. There were white ones, black ones, gray ones with crosses on their backs like crusaders, tiny ones, and others as big as a grain of wheat. And all this variety swarmed and multiplied to the detriment of our skins. And these lice bore in as well on the tough skin of a rude peasant as on the soft skin of an effeminate Parisian. They made no distinction among levels of society. To get rid of them, some rubbed themselves all over with gasoline every night. Others carried sachets of chamfer or powdered themselves with insecticide. Nothing did any good. You'd kill ten of them and a hundred more would appear." End quote. All of this discussion is just about living at the front, and everything just got worse if you were injured. Even if you could somehow make it back from the front, this was still a time before antibiotics, so gangrene and other infection-based diseases were a huge killer of injured men during the battles. Reading stories of men suffering from diseases like gangrene, or left injured on the battlefield, or any other horrible stories, means that everyone sort of has to come to terms with the fact that when reading histories of the war, sometimes you will end up reading descriptions of absolutely horrible things. General de Gaulle would say, quote, What is this conflict but a war of extermination? A struggle of this kind, in its range, significance, and fury, goes beyond anything that Europe has ever known, and it cannot be waged without enormous sacrifices, end quote. These types of sacrifices went beyond the actual fighting that were required on a daily basis from the troops. In his book Poilu, Corporal Louis Barthus would discuss his experience on a burial detail. Quote, the dead men were divided into lots, and we drew for them by squad. For the 13th squad I drew a lucky hand. We had only six corpses to get rid of, and they were very close to the trench. We got the work done quickly. We pushed a cadaver into a shell hole, tossed a few shovelfuls of earth on top of it, and then moved on to the next one. End quote. Burying the dead was bad enough. But then, when a trench would move and the digging would start, it was not uncommon to unearth the previously buried bodies. Private Jack McKenzie would write in a letter back home quote, We relieved our 4th Battalion. These are the trenches which they lost so many men in capturing. It is just one vast dead house. The stench in some places is something awful. The first thing we had to do was dig the trenches deeper and otherwise repair them, and we came across bodies all over the place. You know the Germans occupied these trenches nearly the whole winter, and have been losing heavily, and had to bury their killed in the trenches. There were legs and arms sticking out all over the place when we arrived, but we have buried the most of them properly now. The ground behind us is covered in dead Camerons and Germans, who fell on the 17th of May, and we go out at night and bury them. It is a very rotten job, as they are very decomposed, but it has to be done." These types of experiences would absolutely have an effect on the men who experienced them. Francois Mayer would write in 1914, We no longer take heed of the dead. We care only for the living. That is what debases this human sacrifice. No one has seen anything who has not seen war, eaten beside corpses on which the crows are preying, laughing and chatting with our comrades as we do so. It is utterly terrifying. Quote. This type of coping mechanism was almost to be expected when you think about how what the men were experiencing. I have read countless accounts about these types of horrors that the men experienced, of the piles of dead bodies decomposing in the heat, of unearthing previously dead bodies, of living in the dirt and filth for weeks at a time. I could quote for you a hundred different stories, but I can't possibly imagine the smell, the sights, or the horror of what the men experienced on a daily basis. To just be in the trenches for any amount of time and not go mad, and to be able to stay there and keep fighting, requires a type of resolve that I only hoped that I could summon. Unfortunately for everyone involved, the horrors of 1915 were bad, but they were going to get worse.